welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Weaver Behind the Numbers, the business of government. I am your host, Adam Jones. We're excited to bring you uh, an exciting conversation about the issues important to government audits, uh, operational and finance professionals. And today will be fun. We are swimming uh, in grant money in this age of government, both from the feds, from the states, locals and municipalities, and we want to talk about grant compliance, particularly avoiding fraud in the grant management cycle. Prudent practices to reducing grant fraud, because we, of course, always want to be prudent. We'll talk about internal controls. We'll talk about setting up a grant management system. We'll talk about what happens uh, when fraud does occur. But first, I want to introduce a couple of great colleagues to hit on this subject. Uh, partner Brandon Tannis is with Weaver's Risk Advisory Services. He's the guy with the polar beard. <laughs> and Travis Kasner, the Managing Director of Weaver's Forensics and Litigation Services. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Adam. Let's... Uh, let's jump in with a couple of introductions. Uh, Brandon, talk a little bit about your career and, and how you got here, and then turn it over to, to Travis for his perspective. Great. Thanks, Adam. Uh, and my name is Brandon Tannis. I'm a partner out of our Houston office for our risk advisory services. Um, my focus is state and local government, including higher education and healthcare, um, and I have over about 13 years in really evaluating grant compliance. In my previous life, before Weaver, I spent time in state government uh, evaluating, you know, grant compliance, contract compliance, and so forth, uh, and really being able to provide today some of those insights I've learned through those years in my career and what we do here at Weaver, uh, and see how we can help you all. Yeah, thanks, Adam, and thanks, Brandon. Uh, my name is Travis Kasner. I'm a managing director in Weaver's Forensics and Litigation Services Practice in Austin, Texas. I've got about 12 years of experience uh, conducting financial investigations, primarily related to allegations of fraud, uh, waste and abuse, uh, including vendor kickbacks and bribery, conflicts of interest, employee theft and embezzlement. And uh, the majority of the investigations that I've been involved in uh, relate to government entities such as municipalities, school districts, uh, state agencies, and uh, some on behalf of the Department of Justice. So. Uh, definitely uh, looking forward to sharing uh, some of the insights uh, from um, what I've learned over the course of my career. And I've had the opportunity to work with both of you in the field on engagements, and we've found some stuff. Uh, and I look forward to sharing that with our audience. When you're talking about grant fraud and deterring misconduct, and you get into that laundry list of um, kickbacks and embezzlements and all that stuff that Travis gets deeply into. The best way to prevent all that is a good system of internal controls. And Brandon, you've done a lot of work in this area. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, and if you can give us some, some examples of internal controls, how you define them, document them, 
What's the first step in creating a control framework for grant compliance? Great. That's at the perfect place to start, Adam. And I think what we've commonly seen, you know, definitely, but if, whether it's higher education or state and local municipality or nonprofit about, you know, where do we start? And definitely each one of those organizations has a different level of maturity and, and internal controls. Um, and most of them quickly learn that, you know, any grant has strings attached. And internal controls that we always want to see is, first and foremost, understanding their criteria, having documented policies and procedures, and segregation of duty. Uh, all too often, you see too many people trying to do too many things and not having it spread between your programmatic and your financial personnel. And so having those established internal controls of not just the same person initiating, executing, and approving all transactions, of really having the right levels of people involved um, in those different processes. Where do you see the most common deficiencies when somebody builds a grant management process? What are kind of the steps you would take them through to, to build out a framework for grant management? Uh, and definitely start with your policies and procedures. I think that's how we make sure people know what they're supposed to do, how it's supposed to be performed. And those policy procedures should reflect the current environment. So how are we actually operating? Um, and the common deficiencies we see is those aren't established. So people don't have policies, procedures. They don't have that in place. Or, you know, we have staff turnover. And instead of uh, adjusting our processes to have the right people in place to do a review and approvals, you have the one person that knows the grant that's doing all aspects. Uh, we know that everybody, when they take grant funds, they have a good heart. You know, they're not out there to, to you know, fraudulently spend or, or not do the right thing. Uh, but we see that happening where, you know, what Travis will talk about in a minute, uh, because of with the lack of internal controls and how things can slip through the cracks. The number one theme that we see during the investigations where we do find fraud, waste, and abuse is uh, where internal controls are lacking or they they are in place but are not being adhered to and it creates an environment where it is ripe for fraud and, and uh, allows these types of things to occur. All of us have worked on organizational assessments before uh, on various teams and various organizations. And what I see with grant management from sort of a uh, from sort of an HR perspective, is people have ownerships. People get very attached to their grants, to their grantees, to their recipients. Some of those relationships are built over time. You have organizations that are siloed, especially big, complex ones. How do you balance sort of empowering a decentralized agency, getting grants out, helping recipients do services, with a more centralized approach to compliance, making sure everyone is doing the right thing. Because people take their grant management personally, Brandon. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And they take it personally, and there's definitely a reasoning for that. You know, they, they really enjoy what they're providing to the community, uh, what they're providing to their constituents. Um, and I've, I've come back many times and reflected on that. Where do we see the issues that occur in different organizations of various sizes. And I always go back and kind of think about compliance and starting at the baseline of what is our culture? What is our ethics requirements? And how is ethics really being taught throughout the organization? And that leads to better compliance, people really understanding the rules and the requirements and that it's not just free money, right? There's 
There's authoritative guidance out there. There's regulatory bodies that are making sure that those grants are being spent correctly and appropriately and that those those folks have the resources they need to be able to execute because in the end, they are going to be evaluated. So whether it's someone like Weaver, when we come in and do grant monitoring on behalf of, of various clients, or you have that uh, regulated entity that comes in to do their grant monitoring. But having those controls of compliance of, you know, a proper ethics program, having your policy and procedures and what the requirements and having that disseminated across the organization. We always tell people it's not just your programmatic side that needs to understand what the grant requirements are, but also your financial side. And those are partners together to make sure that we're documenting things appropriately, that we're filing things correctly, that we have kind of that line of defense where financial can look at it and say, was this done right? And should we be questioning this before we approve and submit this for reimbursement and so forth? You, you've talked a fair amount about culture. You also mentioned the word ethics. These are people issues. And let, let's talk about where compliance turns into investigation. At, at what point, when you look at a grant compliance issue, do you look over to your colleague, Travis Kasner, and say, this looks like fraud? What are some of the warning signs? And Travis, uh, after Brandon answers, what are the next steps for folks in an organization who are concerned about fraud? And definitely Travis and I have a great relationship, and that's what's so great about our firm is we have these relationships. We can go to each other and, and talk about these things early. Um, and definitely what I've seen is when we start going into an environment and you see the lack of documentation, unsupported expenditures, kind of that culture of, well, I was just told to do this. You know, that's usually kind of the first red flags. And when you start looking at transactions and they can't support them or you don't really see a lot of reasonings or questionable uh, vendors and so forth. And, you know, there's times where we have to Google vendors to say, who are these people that are providing services? They're not the normal. Uh, and, and when those kind of things start happening, I pick up the phone and, we, and Travis and I start talking and we look at what is the next steps? What do we need to go to our client about? What do we can do internally before we escalate it? Um, and really that we have that conversation. I'll let Travis kind of speak a little bit more about when that kind of handoff starts. Yeah, you know, I will say too the you know the easiest investigations that I've been a part of uh, are the ones where there's been a thorough compliance review and the red flags have already been identified. And then really, what our goal is is to uh, take those red flags and then dig deeper and drill down. And, and really, we're looking for uh, in many cases, you know, the elements of, of fraud uh, and determine whether or not it needs to. Uh, rise to the next level of, you know, referring to law enforcement. And, and that's really, you know, hinders on, uh, you know, materiality is a factor. Is there, you know, intent by the uh, individual to, you know, deceive the, the entity, uh, you know, the misrepresentation and whether or not the organization was relying on that misrepresentation. And a lot of that gets into kind of the traditional investigative, uh, you know, work steps with conducting interviews, looking at, email data, electronic communications, uh, some of those sort of things in order to kind of, you know, show if there is intent uh, and a need to, you know, investigate further. Travis, as, an, as a, a fraud examiner, what are the red flags that are at times obvious to you that may or may not be obvious to an administrator in a public agency? What do you look for? What is 
What are the eye-opening? Ah, that's curious. I want to check that out. You know, one of the things that, that we uh, look for, and in, in, uh, especially over the last four or five years, is you know using analytics to uh, identify anomalies. You know, if we're looking at the data, and if we're looking at a specific cost category, and if you know a uh, you know vendors are being paid more on a normalized basis, you know, compared to a peer group. And so, with a lot of the government entities, it's easy to compare. Uh, kind of on an apples to apples to basis. And so if, you know, one entity is paying for you know, even something as simple as, uh, you know, lawn maintenance and their costs are double uh, what most organizations are paying, you know, that would be a red flag of why are they paying more? Is, uh, is there legitimate reasons for that? Or uh, is there something nefarious going on? And um, a lot of times, you know, it could be uh, indicative of maybe a vendor kickback scheme or uh, bribery or collusion with a vendor or something along those lines. Um, and, and then also with, uh, you know, separation of duties where we don't see that, um, you know, that can be a common trait of uh, you know, where these types of issues occur. Travis, with a, with a quick disclaimer that we are auditors, not psychologists, there are employee behaviors that sometimes signal something's amiss. Uh, when folks look at their employees, especially those with fiduciary responsibilities, what kinds of things do you look for that might direct you to a kickback scheme, embezzlement, somebody maybe running a side business on government time? What, what's your experience around that, Travis? You know, a lot of times what we will see is when there's uh, you know great effort by somebody that's in charge of selecting vendors, you know, to uh, you know, pick a certain vendor rather than, you know, uh, the way that the process should work would be, you know, an evaluation or ranking committee that is uh, without bias ranking, you know, vendors based on, uh, you know, the information that, that is submitted. And it's, it's a you know, fair and transparent process. But, uh, you know, we do see, unfortunately, instances where uh, individuals use their influence to circumvent that process in order to select a vendor, you know, many times uh, could be a smaller or a local vendor, um, you know, as opposed to a, a larger, uh, you know, vendor with years of experience in, you know, whatever that uh, area is. Um, and as far as personal, you know, traits and behaviors, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, uh, on numerous occasions uh, seen instances where there's been gambling habits or, um, you know, living expenses and purchases of houses, vehicles, jewelry, um, you know, and, and hearing and talking to employees who uh, kind of raise these issues and have their own concerns or suspicions. You know, it's not obviously something that always is indicative, but it is something that is a red flag um, that would you know cause us to want to look a little bit deeper. One of the things I wanted to throw out there not necessarily on, on script, but clearly uh, a part of what government is managing right now. Over the last, say, 18 months, um, which has been a very interesting 18 months for all of us, you've seen a lot more emergency procurement, getting things out the door quicker, the um, various places from health to education to public safety have been flooded with federal money, we have had to act quickly in response to the pandemic. 
When you talk about emergency procurement, Brandon, what are some compliance tips you would give folks when maybe they are shortening a procurement cycle and going outside of their normal policies and procedures? Definitely with an emergency purpose, you know, that's always a red flag because, you know, there is usually the tendency to bypass internal control, you know, shorten the process. One is really defining what is an emergency and what would be an emergency purpose in your organization, no matter what the situation, whether it's a natural disaster or, you know, there is some kind of need. You know, we've, we've had emergency purchases if you have a skyscraper and the, the lights go out on top and you have to have that, right? And or you have an emergency, that natural disaster, hurricane, flooding or so forth, and we have to purchase something. Definitely having those established in your policy and procedures, not just a here's a kind of free ticket to buy what you want uh, and just claim it's an emergency. You know, what qualifies an emergency? Still, who's going to be the person through an authority matrix that's going to have to sign off on that? And how is it being documented in the end? If whether it's an emergency purchase or a regular purchase, uh, it should still all be documented in your file, even if it's after the fact that we have everything documented of why we purchased it who was authorizing it, who was approving it, and having all the receipts and invoices and so forth within a centralized file that can be evaluated later. Um, we know definitely there's frustration sometimes with that. If you know there's a disaster, we have to get out there and we have to do it. But if you talk to a lot of you know our clients or experts that are in that field, um, we have to prepare for those emergencies. And so knowing that if they come, especially if it's a natural disaster, what are the steps that we're doing to prepare? And then only using that emergency purchase option uh, as a last resort. I have a question for both of you, whether emergency or non-emergency. What are some of the types of issues you see where compliance-related issues overlap with fraud? When does non-compliance become fraud? I'll start with Travis. One of the, the most common ones that, that we see is related to procurement and, and vendors and, uh, you know, where we see procurement issues uh, can uh, sometimes be indicative of more nefarious activities such as a vendor kickback scheme or, uh, you know, collusion or, or bribery or, or even employee theft. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, something that there may be a reason why uh, the procurement uh, policies were circumvented. And in some cases, it uh, could be incompetence or sloppiness or you know, even laziness, and that's very common. Uh, but it also uh, sometimes could be a, uh, indicative of a deliberate intent to defraud the organization. I, I just have to say, I always go back to the old saying, never uh, attribute to malfeasance what could be easily attributed to incompetence. And sometimes you guys have to figure out the difference, right? Uh, I think Travis Travis was 100% correct and you know, hit the nail on the head with that. And, and you know, a lot of times when we look at you know whether it's purchasing, procurement's always the area that we see this happen the most. Um, and it's, are we following the requirement? You know, each one of our, each one of your grants that you have has authoritative guidance on what should be followed, how it should be done. And you can look to see through that documentation of, you know, are they bypassing it? Do they have appropriate reasonableness for that purpose? Do they follow the threshold requirement, whether it's getting informal quotes or getting bids? And, you know, how do they document that? And usually that, when you look at that and you see whether it's being, you know, 
floppiness or malfeasance. Um, you know, it, those are the kind of the first areas that we look at. If we see that, that's when we know we need to dig in further. Whether do we have a compliance issue, a training issue, or is it really a fraud issue? Has your work evolved over the course of your careers? You, you've both been at this a very long time. I know Travis mentioned data analytics earlier, which is has um, become more and more prevalent when, when fraud pre prevention. Um, but how has the uh, uh, aspects of reviewing grant management and, and identifying compliance and fraud evolved over, say, the last decade, Brandon? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of evolving. And I think with the influx of grant funds, we started out really just kind of seeing, do you have a grant management function? Do you have policies and procedures and forms and templates set up? And that worked for a while. But when you saw that, you know, well, we have policies, but no one follows it. Or we our, our influx of, of grant funds is exceeding our abilities. We've gone to more data analytics and really diving into the transactions doing, you know, looking at trends, looking at the types of purchases that are being made, the types of vendors, what it looks like over the year, you know, um, and, and really digging in more. And so now when we actually go in there to say, was this done appropriately? Are there questionable costs? Um, it is a lot, it is a more of a deep dive than what we probably in the past, what you would see of just kind of saying, do we have the structure in place to now say, you have the structure, are we following it? Are we meeting all the requirements? And I would say in all of our work for grant, you know, doing grant monitoring for different agencies, you know, those requirements every year, there's kind of a flavor of the year of where do we want to dig into, whether it's certain types of purchases where we see, you know, small purchases or, you know, we always used to think competitive procurements, the over 50,000 procurements were the high risk. Well, you'll see more and more of the small or the micro purchases, so less than $3,500, where you know we're not really doing what we should be. And now with the age of things like Amazon, it complicates that. So now people can go online and, and buy what they want and get it in two days, and they forget about their internal controls and the processes they have to follow. So really kind of digging into the modern age of purchasing and through online and not having to follow all these formal procurement processes that we used to, um, including what the hot button we've heard lately is leases, you know, leasing of, of buildings and equipment. And are we following the right requirements for that? Travis, how does that lead to fraud prevention in that event? Yeah, uh, and kind of adding on to what Brandon said, you know, certainly from the technology standpoint, we have seen an evolution with, you know, the, the Amazon and the, you know, PayPal and some of the third-party payment processors, which can really disguise the ultimate use of funds from a financial reporting standpoint where you may see a large amount for an American Express credit card statement, but what what's really underneath that, and it's it's not always transparent unless you really dig deeper. You know, we've also seen uh, these third-party payment processors such as you know, Square and PayPal, you know, being used uh, in a way to, uh, you know, deceive, uh, you can, uh, you know, create fake names and, and have them show up on the credit card statements. And, and so that's, you know, one thing. And then kind of stepping back at a, at a higher level, you know, traditionally, uh, the fraud investigation has been you know, somewhat of a reactive approach where there's an allegation that's, uh, you know, been received by the organization, you know, usually through some sort of 
uh, hotline or anonymous tip, which is one of the more common ways that you know fraud is detected. Uh, and, and then an investigation would would occur that uh, you know investigates that allegation. And where we've really tried to you know use analytics and some of the other tools is to take a more uh, proactive approach and identifying where there is you know potential fraud. Uh, and you know one example being with uh, you know the Bernie Madoff uh, and you know uh, Harry Markopoulos using you know data analytics techniques to identify the trends that pointed to you know something he saw that nobody else saw and and you know it's it, it's a there is an added, added layer of difficulty with uh, in a low success rate but you know to the extent that we are able to identify potential fraud um, in addition to uh, you know investigations that occur through allegations and the hotline process, you know, I think it's a, a win-win from a fraud detection standpoint. Hopelessly old-fashioned, but an ounce of prevention really is worth a pound of cure in this area. Okay. Lightning round. Uh, Travis, you and I have worked in school districts together before, and I'm always amazed at how often band instruments get stolen. So in your entire career, what's the best thing you've ever seen stolen from a government entity? I, I've heard of band instruments being stolen, and I've read certainly read uh, articles about that. Uh, probably, you know, there was a, a statue of a, uh, a bear that was, and I guess it had some value, maybe a few thousand dollars that went missing. So that was probably the most... Uh, kind of interesting one as far as missing items or theft. <laughs> Same question, Brandon. You know, I definitely think in, in school districts, uh, you know, what we've seen a lot is kind of the theft of time. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, not just assets, but you talk about the theft of time to grants and so forth, of charging time that really wasn't worked or having people charge time to a grant that wasn't really done by them or they weren't allowed to be on that grant. So, you know, the theft of time, which is a different, we always think about procurements and purchases and travel and having unallowable, but really the time in itself uh, is, can be a fraud, a larger fraud if, if it's not really looked at closely. You're, you're getting deeply existential now, so I'm going to have to stop this conversation. So many places we could branch out, uh, whether that is uh, payment cards, grant management, emergency procurement, but I've really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, we've left a lot on the table, so I hope we get to do this again. Brandon, Travis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Adam. Yes, thank you, Adam. And that is another episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers, the business of government. We look forward to discussing more topics with you, and uh, episode three will be right around the corner. So thank you for being with us today. I'm Adam Jones.